Thank you, Sarah, for the invitation. I appreciate being asked. It's an honor to do anything for Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, like the joke is, is that we get asked back, you know, now that I'm sober and, you know, live in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I, people want me to come back. So that's always a nice thing. Um, uh, I told you my name's Sarah Nemechek, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a member of the Primary Purpose Group in Durham. We meet it on Tuesdays and Friday nights at 730. We're still hybrid because we're, we're a family-friendly group. And so a lot of parents still need um, some of that uh, hybrid access. So um, help, feel free to join in. We have our special fifth Friday. Um, our Fridays are our open meetings. And um, we have our fifth Friday event tomorrow that's going to be an AA Al-Anon speaker meeting because, again, we're trying to ha- encompass that family aspect like conventions might um, do where they try to involve the spouses or the family members or the children or things like that. So we would love to have you. We have our event tomorrow night at 730. <coughs> Um, my sobriety date's December 24th, 1998, and um, just an, you know, just a miracle that I'm standing before you today and that I have the life that I have today um, that it ties completely to the topic of spiritual awakening um, and spiritual experience because I, my first sponsor was real, she was real fond of saying that, you know, she's not, she's not the same woman that walked through these doors, you know, in 98, and I'm not that same woman that walked through these doors, and and what happened was the gift of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, manifesting through a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience, has changed me into a completely different person. One of the ladies, I particularly love jails. Um, I've put my application in, by the way, so for Wake County, for daytime Wednesdays. I'm a mom, so I'm looking for, like, services that I can do during the day while the kids are in school. And, um, and so uh, I love jails. And one of the ladies that I went to the jail with... Um, back, you know, recently, um, she said, um, she said, Alcoholics Anonymous has given me the opportunity to live two lives in one. And I can assure you that I live each life to the fullest, um, each extreme. And, um, and, and so, but that's what, having had a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience as a result of practicing, working these steps, living these steps, practicing these steps over and over, year after year, um, I'm able to live a life that I never imagined was possible for me. Um, and to kind of um, backtrack and tell you just a little bit about myself, um, I, um, I'm, from, I'm from Wilson, North Carolina. I'm from a great family. I didn't grow up seeing alcohol in my home. Um, I have it in my family. Examples of it exist. But um, I discovered alcohol when I was about 13 or 14 years old, and I immediately loved the effect produced by alcohol. Um, it did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And I pursued alcohol whenever, um, as much and as often as I could. From the very beginning, I don't understand anything about social drinking. Um, I wanted uh, oblivion. I wanted the ease and comfort that a drink gave me. Um, And um, I was, by the time I was um, 16, I had already been institutionalized one time. Psych wards um, were the first interventions for me. Um, I... um, I had been introduced to, I, was, I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 16, um, and then by the time um, I was 17, um, I was in a long-term adolescent transitional living center for, al- for substance abuse, alcohol substance abuse, and um, was go- part of um, going to that program was having to go every day um, uh, to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and get a sponsor from the outside and work the steps, and I lived at that facility a long time. And then I eventually transitioned to the outside, but um, I didn't, um, 
I wasn't desperate and I wasn't at that, that, that jumping off point and I wasn't ready to adopt this program into my life yet. I did return to drinking. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I've been cheering for softball teams this week. If you see a car decorated, a van decorated out there, that's my daughter. They won district tournaments this week. So we're going on stage. So I think I've yelled a little bit, so my voice is failing me a little bit. I'm sorry. But, um, but by the time I was 17, I wasn't desperate, uh, I, and I returned to drinking. Um, actually, I had to stay in that facility until I was 18. That was kind of part of the deal is that I had to, my parents did a last effort to try to help me while they still had legal ability to help me. They had me institutionalized till I, 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 as long as they could keep me somewhere. So I finished high school in, um, in a long-term program. Uh, an alternative school, um, but the best thing that happened to me while I was there was that I was really, the seed of Alcoholics Anonymous was planted. So I did get out. I wasn't hopeless. I wasn't ready to, to um, adopt this program quite yet. I still wanted to have one foot in the old life and one foot in the new life, and so I rejoined my old acquaintances, but I had the attitude that I wasn't going to drink. I, I mean, it did make sense based on the evidence produced um, that I, I probably had a problem. I mean, I have been called an alcoholic as far back as I can remember. There was something very different from the way that I drank, compared to the person beside me and um, it was just noticeably more extreme and um, and I'm a person that intuitively knew that if a drink would work just as well on you know it would work, if it would work on a Saturday night it would work just as well on a Wednesday night and it would work just as well on a Wednesday morning you know and so like I took that morning drink long before I needed that morning drink and a member of, of a previous home group says if you take that morning drink before you need that morning drink it won't be long before you need that morning drink and so my drinking was um, was extreme and it was round the clock. I didn't, I would just prefer not to be present. And so that's how I drank and, um, and I returned to drinking after that long-term um, program and um, after being effectively in, uh, introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous and I returned to drinking with a head full of Alcoholics Anonymous and a body full of booze and they were not mixing. And everything that they predicted would happen, you know, the jails, the institutions and, and then death, you know, wasn't happening fast enough. Jails happen. I've been to jail, you know, institutions. I told you I've already been to institutions and, and death, you know, it just wasn't happening fast enough. I'm the kind of person that was going to die from a, a long-term, you know, terminal illness, but like little by little over the years. And so, um, so anyway, I, um, ended up, um, the gift, you know, that was to grow that the, what was to grow into the, this time sober for me, um, happened around, um, it kind of had started happening around Christmas of 98, um, my sobriety day, Christmas Eve, and it's just an amazing gift every year to celebrate that, to be mindful of that for my parents, because um, I was, you know, so young getting sober. I was, I was 18 when I did end up coming in here and staying in here, and um, it, one of the things that um, Silkworth really honed in about, now I'm connecting it to the topic, don't worry, I'm not going to tell my story, but, um, but one of, Silk, one of the things Silkworth talks about is the absolute necessity of the person coming in the program to have experienced hopelessness. He talks about that over and over and over again, that in order for a person to come in and adopt this way of life and to do the things that are not necessarily comfortable or you know feel very good to do, that that person had to believe at some time that for them there was no hope. And I reached that point, and I've got chill bumps just telling you that, like that I remember that to this day what it was like to be there. I was, I reached this point of hopelessness um, that I truly believed that for me there would be, there would never be anything different for me, that this is the way that I was going to proceed for the rest of my life, and that I would never attain what I watched people attain, um, and do so naturally, and do so, so easily. I mean, one of the clearest moments for me, I was 
I was an outdoor survivor, you know, survivor. I, I, I grew up on farms. You know, I'm not afraid to be outdoor. I'm not afraid to sleep outdoors. I'm not afraid to walk the streets. I'm not afraid to sleep in my car if I'm lucky enough to have a car. Um, and I remember one of the moments that was just so clear to me illustrating this hopelessness was that I remember the sun coming up was not like some people who are sober and very, you know, God-centered, like what a beautiful moment and a beautiful experience. Like to me, it was so depressing to start another day. And I remember, if you guys know what I'm talking about, that the night is long, sometimes very cold, you know, um, but the night is long and then the world starts to wake up and people start moving and they start leaving their houses. And I remember that I would watch people leave their houses after I had been outdoors or up all night long, and I would watch people leave their houses, and I wondered how they did that, and I did not think I would ever be able to join that sector of the community. I watched them have families and have relationships and just doubted I would ever, ever be able to have something like that. How do they maintain those relationships and things like that? And so that's the hopelessness that that I settled into and just kind of drug bottom, you know, in 98, the fall of 98, and, and Christmas Eve's Eve was, was when it, it, magic happened for me, is that I, I, I reached a point where I was willing to come back to Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I had some bad circumstances going on in my life with health, with legal problems, but I just came in this time and I said that I'm going to give it 100%, I'm going to do everything they suggest, and if it doesn't work, I'm going to at least know that I tried. And there's no exact, I won't have any reason to say why it didn't work for me. And so that was the approach that I came in to Alcoholics Anonymous with this time. And, and I stand before you today, many years later, you know, a, the different, a different woman that I am, having a different life, very different. And I stand before you today having all those things that I used to watch people have and wonder how they had those. They got those things and maintained those things. And I have all those things today. And um, even so much that I almost, this is, this is not true. Like if you get to know me, real, it's not real. But I almost look so good from the outside that it's even hard for people where I come, came from to even recognize that, that I ever lived a life like that. And, um, and, so, and that's one of the descriptions that the, the appendix gives for spiritual awakening, spiritual experience. So that, that appendix that I make reference to is in the very back of the book, if you don't know, many of you know, and it, it describes spiritual awakening and spiritual experience. It's a little, the, the original printing of the book gave the illusion that people had to have an, a sudden, spectacular upheaval, a spiritual experience. They tell us in that appendix that we can interchange spiritual awakening and spiritual experience. One other word that they use, Silkworth in particular used, he called it moral psychology, like some deep and effective change happened. And Silkworth noticed that when he studied all these patients, um, prior to AA existing, he noticed that every once in a while something big would happen and it would have the power to temporarily arrest a person's alcoholism. And I know I've had experiences like that in my story. You know, I was a student of myself. I was baffled. I was frustrated with myself. Why do I do this over and over? Why do I end up in the same position over and over and over again? Why do I not learn from my mistakes? Why, what's wrong with me? I, I was I didn't even, I was frustrated with my own self, but, but Silkworth talked about that every once in a while in my own story, I do identify with this, something might happen big that would scare me, that would move me spiritually or move me on some plane, um, and it would temporarily um, halt 
or pause my drinking. And the problem was is that at that time, this was me prior to coming to AA, it didn't have lasting power. Just that one little experience was a nice little experience, but I wasn't at that time connected to any solution that would perpetuate, that would continue that, that spiritual experience that maybe was initiated by whatever big happened to me. And so the design of the 12 steps, as I've, I've been explained, um, or I've, I've been told, if we look at the wording, the wording of the 12th step says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result, as the singular, like I'm a student of language, I speak another language. And so like um, having had, it's the result, uh, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, that's, so that if we look at the wording of that, um, that means that if I practice the first 11 steps, I'll, it'll create a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience enough to continue and perpetuate. I had something go that got me stopped. It could be a jail, you know, like a jail can stop me, you know, temporarily, but something like big and some kind of experience in my life can also, could also stop me. But the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I got stopped and the steps have been that thing that has changed me, that has created that ongoing educational variety that happens as uh, contrary to what the book may have presented in the beginning, that it had to be some spectacular upheaval or sudden experience as a spiritual awakening. Mine has been the educational variety that has happened over time. The change of working these steps. I've worked the steps many times. I work the steps. I live the steps in my life. I practice this stuff. Um, I love having sponsees because for me, that's one of the ways that this program continues itself is that I try to do the same things that I, I do with my sponsees. I try to live by example. I try not to tell them to do anything that I'm not doing. And so sponsorship has really been another thing that's been able to keep this spiritual awakening, spiritual experience happening in my life. And so um, my favorite thing, um, too, is the preface of the 12 and 12, and it talks about, you know, these steps are a set of principles, spiritual in nature. I don't, I don't quote things, by the way. I can't quote things word for word. So I'm not going to do it perfectly, anything that I say tonight. But it's a set of principles, spiritual in nature, that if practice is a way of life, like that means that I put my trash can out. This is a, an example from today. The tra our trash collectors want the trash can put out in a certain way. And I try to do that just to make their life easier because it's the right thing to do. And I'm doing something just to make something simple like that. You know, like I really try to be that good person as, as much and as often as I can. Um, I try to do the right thing when people aren't looking. Like I'm practicing these principles. Um, I practice spiritual principles. Like sometimes you'll hear in AA, like each step has a principle, you know. I don't really kind of agree with that. I think that was something that treatment centers like invented because it was like a nice exercise that you could, you know, like practice it. But, but I think that there's so many principles, spiritual principles involved in every step and, and that they overlap and that they repeat and they, um, and so that's what I really try to do is I've tried to incorporate these principles into the way that I live, into the, the actions that I take, into my interactions with my family and with my, my children, with my patients, with my members of Alcoholics Anonymous, with my neighbors, like everywhere I go, I really try to do that. And what, what stands behind me, I think powering me is, is just King alcohol. I don't want to return to the way that I was. And I get spiritually unhealthy when I'm not, um, when I'm not connected, when I'm not actively like perpetuating that spiritual awakening or spiritual experience. And so, um, I, um, um, Getting close to winding down, I'm just going to tell you a couple little stories. Um, 
one funny story was, you know, kind of to, to tell you, I was living in that group home when well, I was still a, a teenager, and um, I had been introduced to AA, and I remember one time, I thought I had to make myself have a spiritual experience, so I tried so hard, I tried so hard, and I just wanted to have, like, a white light experience or something. I mean, I've had blue light experiences, you know, but, <laughs> but like, I wanted to have, I just wanted to have that, and I, I you know... I never did have that. And so if you haven't ever had something like that, do not be discouraged. You know, like I've had many, many neat experiences. What what a spiritual awakening has ultimately, you know, enabled me to, to do is to have a relationship. I've had a psychic change. I don't think the same way. It's changed the way that I think. It's changed the person that I am. It changes the way that I respond to situations that before I used to, you know, adversely respond to. I'm, I'm just a different person entirely. And, but what it's also done, having a spiritual awakening, a spiritual experience, has slowed me down a lot. Um, many of you guys know me when I was young. Um, I'm no longer young. So, um, but, um, you know, like, I, it slowed me down. It's helped me be centered and present. When I'm slower and when I'm more present, I can hear the voice of God a lot of times. I don't hear a voice. I don't hear voices any longer. I have been in psych wards, by the way. So. But, um, but I, I can hear the message from my power greater than myself through the people around me. If I'm slow enough and centered enough, if I'm actively living those things, um, the, these principles and this way of life, I'm slow enough and I'm centered enough, I can hear the message that's sent to me. Like when we, when we, in the 11th step, when we ask for inspiration, we pause, you know, when uncertain. We ask for inspiration, intuitive thought or decision. Like that's, to me, the epitome of living in a spiritual awakening and God consciousness. And so, I, um, I, I never did have one, but I had, I had an educational variety spiritual experience. And I've been able to stay sober, you know, all these years off of my educational variety. So if you've never had, like, a, a white light experience, there's hope for you yet. And um, the other thing, too, that they say that a lot of times other people will notice the change um, much sooner than we will ourselves. So that it was, and I had that same experience. When I got sober, I was, um, you know, by the time I was 18 still, I was ready to sponsor. I was eligible based on the, the steps that I had worked to sponsor other ladies. And so my first sponsor told me that I dressed like a hooch and that no one was going <laughs> to ask me to be their sponsor because, um, because of how I dressed and how I carried myself. And so none of the ladies that were coming into Alcox Anonymous were asking me to be their sponsor. So I had to go find women to be sponsees. And so prisons and jails have plenty of women that need sponsors and so they took me and um and so I got a lot of experience at young in sobriety I got a lot of experience going into prisons that was my thing I'm from Wilson North Carolina and there was a women's prison in these years in Tarboro North Carolina and I would go there and I would just basically spend time with ladies and you know like I was never afraid those were my people you know like that's where I that's the world I come from you know I don't I may look like this today but I'm not that person and um that you see in front of you like I I am more comfortable in a jail carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous than I am in a, like a dental continuing education education course at UNC, you know, which is my <laughs> profession. Like I feel more at home and relaxed with those people there. And um, but I remember that I was taking ladies out. I would even get to take ladies out on pass and take them to outside meetings. And um, and I remember one day I had a lady out on pass, and I was um, I had to stop in a store in like an, a, a rough part of town for some reason, like a gas station. And someone hit behind the. It was one of the stores that I used to when I ran the 
rougher neighborhoods. I think it was a sponsee that had gotten out of prison, and I was giving her rides after she had gotten out, and we stopped at this store for some reason. It was an old store that I used to buy from. And the guy behind the counter could not believe the person that I was. Like, I was unrecognizable. And that's what our literature says, is that to me, the person was unrecognizable. And that's how I was. A lady that I used to, my, my running buddy, I was 18. She was 54. We drank the same. And, um, and her name was Dootbug, and she was very good to me. She was like a little angel in disguise, even though she maybe was a bad influence in some ways. Like, she was totally, those of you who have run the streets, you know that those people exist that, like, saved our butts. You know, and I, I don't know what I would have done without her. I mean, the, I would have had so many other things happen to me if it hadn't been for her. But um, I remember she would. She told me that too. She says, "I've never seen anyone change as fast as you changed." And uh, and when I had come, you know, out of that lifestyle, I had gone back to the restaurant where we used to work for, and I saw her. Um, I we used to eat at that restaurant like you, like we ate out this tonight before the meeting. And she she told me that she says, "I've never seen anyone get out of that lifestyle and." and change as fast. And it was the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous has taken me out of, from the Roach Motels of 301 in Wilson, North Carolina, to, you know, I've been able to go to college. I've been able to learn another language. I've been able to travel the world. I've been able to have a family. I have a marriage today, and I'm faithful to one person. You know, to me, that is a spiritual way. Like, that is evidence of... I knew, you know, that was a tool I had. I could work those men. And, um, and so, but, like, to power that down and to, it was just, um, oh, my gosh. It was just, just to be the person that I am today and to not damage my children, to, have, to, to, to be able to not continue this, this unfortunate chain of alcoholism, you know, in my family for today. Who knows what they'll turn out to be like. But, um, but just to not be a part of that. Um, vicious cycle any longer. So that's all I've got. Uh, we're going to put Daniel up here next because he's going to clean up any damage I, I did. <laughs> so I can't think of a better person. I can't think of a better person that I'd rather share this, this what you call it, a panel with. So, uh, Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> Great job. I agree with almost everything she said. <laughs> almost everything. Except the, the part about her not being young. Because I am young still, and she's obviously younger than me. So that makes her very young. So good job. It is an honor to share a panel with you. Um, I made a few notes. My... Uh, my name's Daniel Womack, and I am an alcoholic. There's two people in this world that calls me Dan. One of them is my mom, and the other one's Sarah. <laughs> but that's all good. <clears throat> but um, sobriety date's August 1st of 97. Home group's primary purpose group of Southern Pines. And uh, they're meeting there tonight, and they're having a speaker meeting there tonight. And... I had a job to, to record the speaker. We record our speakers there, and I uh, and, um, hope I'm not being recorded. Um, <clears throat> but uh, anyhow, somebody had to take my job, so that, that was nice. It's good to be here with you. I, I just got back from vacation, very spiritual time, and uh, it really, it's good to be back home there. Um, love the topic. I, uh, I was thinking about it while, while you were talking, you were talking about spiritual awakening and such, and I was sitting there thinking about... Um, 
And I thought this was written in the back of the book in spiritual experience, and I couldn't find it. So it must not be there. I'm just blind. Um, and I am blind. I mean, I got contacts in right now, but I can't see when I got contacts in. If I take them out, I can't read. What I meant to say. If I take them out, I can read fine, but then I can't see you. So, I mean, so anyhow, so I'm looking in there trying to find this, and I, I thought it said something in there about a psychic change being uh, a new set of ideas replacing the old set of ideas. And I don't think it's there because I read it twice and couldn't find it. So I want to say it might be in a doctor's opinion, but I couldn't find it there either. But again, I can't see. Um, so... <clears throat> So, so I'm going to go with that from my memory. I'm going to trust my memory on that, that it's in there. Because that's what I can kind of hook into a little bit clearer than the idea of the white light experience and, and all this. I can, I can uh, hook into that idea of a psychic change being that uh, my old ideas and the things that drove me and the decisions I made and, and, and how my will would get in the way of, of common sense and, and all this kind of got replaced with a bunch of new ideas that were taught here in these rooms and one-on-one -on -one with a sponsor and a lot of times in a car or a truck riding with other AA members and listening to them talk um, <clears throat> is uh, how I had a lot of these ideas and things kind of replaced in my mind. I want to qualify myself. I took my first drink at 15 years old. I took my last drink at 23. I think about a second. And, uh, and so uh, August 1st of 1997 is my sobriety date. So if I make it to uh, August, it'll be 26 years. And, and so it just uh, it, it baffles me thinking about that because I don't even feel like I'm that old not, right now. But, um, <clears throat> but anyhow... Um, uh, I took that first drink and it changed my life, and it was uh, it was an awakening to say the least. And and if I'd have known what alcohol was going to do for me, I wouldn't have waited till I was 15. I can promise you that. I would have done it a whole lot sooner, more like about kindergarten, because I needed it my first day of kindergarten. Um, <clears throat> and. And it's just, it just was like that for me. I needed a drink as soon as I discovered it. And, and, I, and I drank like that the, the rest of my drinking days. But something changed somewhere along the line, and I developed uh, um, an obsession with alcohol. And uh, um, the craving was almost immediate. I don't ever remember a time of drinking and not having that sense of craving. I don't remember that. But basically, I could describe that like I take a drink, and the drink makes me thirsty. And the more I drink, the thirstier I get, and I just can't seem to quench it. But there's another thing that happens to me that talks about in the book, and that's the sense of an obsession, which is a problem in the mind. It's a, it's a consuming thing that just kind of comes into my mind, and I'm unable to uh, push it away, the thought of a drink. And, uh, and the way that looked like in my life, what I developed was um, every day, every day I would wake up with hangovers. I had hangovers every day. I envy the people that are, that are in AA that never had a hangover, and I've met a few. And I think most of them just never stopped drinking, so they never had that hangover. But um, anyway, so I'd wake up in the morning just so hungover, I couldn't drink water, I couldn't brush my teeth, 
I was just, a, you know, I heard a guy say one time his head hurt so bad his hair hurt. And, I mean, that's what it felt like. And, um, <clears throat> and so I'd go to work like that. Somehow I would go to work, and I worked outside in construction and run power tools and listen to hammering all day. And, it, yeah, it was rough. And uh, so I would, I would get there, and somehow something would change. I mean, I'd swear alcohol off. I'd say, I'm not going to do this again. I'm just not going to do this again. And I would go on to work, suffer up there for a couple of hours, and all of a sudden I'd be able to drink some water. And all of a sudden I'd be able to eat a couple of crackers or something and get on my stomach. And all of a sudden I'd start feeling a little bit better. And all of a sudden my mind would change, and I would realize that I had overreacted. <laughs> it really wasn't that bad. And that's the obsession returning into my mind. And I'm automatically started figuring out how I'm going to make this thing work. You know, and I have crazy ideas like maybe I didn't drink enough water when I went to bed. If I had drank a bunch of water, I wouldn't have been so dried up in the morning. You know, I should have took a couple of aspirin before I went to bed. My head wouldn't hurt so bad. I don't think I ate anything before I began drinking. I shouldn't have drunk on an empty stomach. I'm going to fix that tonight. And by the time I get off and work, I want to drink so bad I can hardly stand it, and I'm heading home to get to it, and I'm already feeling better because I know I'm heading to it. And I get it, and I get a couple in me, and I don't even feel the effects of it, but I'm already feeling better because I know it's coming. And, <clears throat> and that's, again, another one of those sprees would begin, and I would drink until I would black out or I'd pass out or go to sleep or whatever it looked like, and I'd repeat that every single day. The same kind of insane behavior. And uh, one of the uh, awakenings for me was to realize that that in and of itself is the definition, the only thing I need to see in my life of insanity, is repeating that same behavior over and over again and being powerless over that. Be powerless over that thought that enters my mind and not being able to push it away and it just consumes me until I pick up that next drink. Um, <clears throat> eventually, I got to a point where... Um, uh, I was faced with a decision. I was in trouble. I was in big trouble. Um, I was seeing a counselor, an outpatient treatment program. I was doing weekends in the Moore County Jail due to my drinking because of DWIs. And um, also uh, um, had some family situations that turned my life upside down. And all this came down on me all at once. And I was in my apartment. And, uh, and I just had a surrender. I just had a place where I just gave up. I just absolutely gave up right there in that apartment and I uh, fell to my knees um, not because I wanted to get on my knees I just couldn't stand up anymore and I was just had a collapse just a collapse mentally spiritually physically it was just a collapse just an absolute uh, surrender and uh, I was on my knees and I remember being there and I didn't know what to do my whole life felt like it was just caving in on top of me um, it's just consumed with the darkness. Uh, Bill talks about it in his story, I think, about uh, quicksand stretched out in all directions. That's what it felt like in that apartment, is I had no hope in any direction. The past was too dark to look at. The future was too scary, and the present was unbearable. The present was unbearable. And uh, I was just in that dark, dark place. And I just prayed a simple prayer, God help me. I didn't expect much to happen. You know, I just did that because I didn't know what else to do. And uh, in that darkness, there was, a, there was a little bit of hope that appeared. And I distinctly remember my white light experience was like a candle. 
in that darkness. And it was just a, just a glimmer of hope. And, um, and I was able to get to my feet and I was able to uh, uh, remember that uh, the counselor had given me a meeting list. It's back when our meeting lists were all in print. And had a meeting list and it had a couple of meetings on there circled that he told me to go to. And, um, and so I remembered that meeting list and uh, I found that meeting list and I thought to myself that maybe these people in AA might be able to help me. And I think that was the thought that was supplanted in my mind at that time. And so I ended up going into my first meeting um, and uh, I got introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous in a way that I was absolutely blessed to experience. I know it's not everybody's experience and I didn't know it at the time how fortunate I was to be where I was at. I was in a very strong group that had just started a couple of months before I walked in the door. I was the first newcomer. And so you had alcoholics in a group that were starting a group and they were focused on service. They were doing a lot of things in the community and wanting to start doing service outside the group and they were building something. They were all on fire. They just had done a workshop that had been done by Tom I. Probably people in here that know that name. But he had done a workshop on the, the big book. And uh, these members had come together after that workshop, being on fire, wanting to start a, a, a group. And here I come, walking in the door. And, uh, and so they just took me under their wing, and uh, I just walked with, uh, you know, just giants in the program. I mean, a number of these members have passed on, and I just seen things that uh, I was blessed to see. Um, <clears throat> some of the things, I, I wrote down some things here. I want to cover some things that uh, kind of were little awakenings for me along the, along the way. One of the first things I remember is I didn't have any driver's license when I got to AA. I know that's shocking, but I didn't have any driver's license. I know everybody in this room's got driver's license right now, and I'm proud of you. Uh, but, but I didn't. And, uh, and so I needed, I needed to find rides to the, to the meeting or either drive illegally. And, um, and I wasn't about wanting to drive illegally. So... Uh, this guy was giving me rides to the meeting. I remember being at the gas station one day, and he'd already taken me to a couple of meetings. And I asked him, I said, you know, I'm going to give you some gas money for uh, picking me up and taking me to the meeting. And I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was to the effect of, no, you won't. And he said, uh, <clears throat> it's described to me that what he was doing, he was getting more out of than what I was getting by being able to be of service. And I didn't really understand that. But then he said something else that turned it all upside down for me. And it made sense. He said that, you know, one day you'll have your driver's license back and just do for someone else what I'm doing for you. And that hit me hard because I, I couldn't imagine getting my driver's license even at that time, much less giving somebody a ride. And, um... But it was like something I, my mind just focused on, and I was like, maybe that'll happen. Um, so that was a big thing that kind of stood out in my mind when I looked back. Another time, I was uh, decided to go on vacation down in New Orleans with 90 days of sobriety. <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend that. In the big book, it says if you've got a reason to be somewhere, a good reason, 
You know, you can do things. You can go to all sorts of places. And my reason for going to New Orleans was they had, at that time, it was either the second or the third largest aquarium in the world. <laughs> and I, <laughs> now, I was a big fish enthusiast. So I had tropical fish, and I was, I was big on fish, and I wanted to go see this thing, right? Now, why I went through Biloxi, Mississippi, I'm not exactly sure. But I rode into Biloxi, Mississippi with 90 days of sobriety, and it was a sign out front of Biloxi, Mississippi, and he was talking about the riverboats, you know, the casino, casino boats down there. And I heard stories about it. When you, when you go to these type of places, you can pretty much can drink for free as long as you're gambling or stuff like that, and it just fascinated me. And, uh, <clears throat> but so I'm heading down there, and of course I've been thinking about that kind of stuff. I know I was, but I saw that sign, and the sign said, free shuttle service to and from the riverboats. I don't even have to worry about driving. You know, I didn't have any driver's license. And I don't even have to worry about driving. I can get just as drunk as I want. And they'll take me back to my hotel. And this thought was just getting in my mind. And uh, as I'm going into Biloxi, this is what I'm thinking about. And, uh, and all of a sudden, I'm thinking, man, that's crazy. That's insane. And I had a piece of paper in my pocket. And it was... Uh, it was a contact, AA contact in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi. And I had told somebody I was going down there. And this fellow Tom I had given me a contact and written it down. And I remember reaching in there and pulling that thing out. And I made that phone call when I got into the hotel, I guess it was, because they didn't have cell phones back then. So I made that phone call and uh, and guy answered. He said, yeah, meet me at such and such address. Um, and we'll go to the meeting. Okay. So I go over there, and I get in there, and I, I go over there, and I sit down at this place. I, I go into it. Well, I think I'm walking around in there, and I'm trying to find the meeting, and uh, it's a soup kitchen. So people are just kind of gathering around, and they're getting ready for the food and whatnot, and I ask somebody, you know, is there an AA meeting here? And they're like, uh, no, I don't think so. And they said, go, go talk to somebody over there. They've been here a lot longer than me. And so I find another person. I go, there's an AA meeting here. And he's like, no, I've been one here a couple of years ago. I'm like, what in the world? This guy has tricked me, you know. And, um, <clears throat> and uh, he said, what are you doing? I said, well, this guy told me to come here. And he said, what guy? I said, this guy's name right here. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know him. He'll be here in a, uh, a little bit. He always comes here every whatever night that was, and he always looks for somebody that's come to that old meeting to see if they wanted to go to the other meeting. And he's been doing that a couple of years. Holy crap. Every couple of years. I was like, it's just hard to fathom that. And then, and so he, he comes up eventually, and we like meet up, and he's like, yeah, yeah, get in the car, we'll go to the meeting. And we're going over to the meeting, and he looks at me, and he said, by the way, how'd you get my number? And I said, well, a guy named Tom I gave me your number. He said, Tom I? You know Tom I? And I said, yeah. It didn't mean anything to me. And then, and then he said, and then I thought about it, and I was like, how does Tom I know this guy? <laughs> I wasn't too bright. <laughs> but it, what happened was it, it made me understand that Alcoholics Anonymous is huge. And you got people that know people in other states. And that was just baffling to me that, that this thing was that, you know, intertwined. 
and that I could go all the way, you know, to the, the southern border in the U.S. And, and meet somebody in AA that knew somebody from my little town I was in. And it's, it's just, it, it, it just kind of made me feel like I was a part of something so much bigger than what I ever had been. Um, so I get back, and I, at that time I had about 90 days of sobriety, and uh, I still thought about drinking all the time. Um, I would just go around on a daily basis thinking about drinking, and I would never really know, um, you know what my thoughts would be. Some days I'd go around thinking about, man, I sure am doing good not drinking. Man, I'm doing good. And I'd go to the meeting or whatever, and I'm prancing around. Man, life is great. And then some days I'd go to the meeting or whatever it is I'm doing. Man, I wish I could drink. <laughs> and just consumed with the obsession all the time. And <clears throat> it just never would go away. Now, some days it would go away maybe for a little while. And, uh, but then it would come back. And I was working the steps with a sponsor. And I don't know exactly when this was, but I'm reasonably positive it was after 6 and 7. And probably in either eight or either I had begun an amends process was the time frame I'm thinking this happened. But I just remember one day just thinking, when's the last time I thought about drinking? And I was like thinking hard, and I couldn't remember when it was. The obsession, I couldn't think. I couldn't remember the last time I thought about drinking. It just just kind of shocked me because it was with me all all the time. And, And I was like, this obsession has been removed. It's like it's been removed. And, um, <clears throat> and it, it scared me. It's, it absolutely scared me because I had this idea up until this point that if it ever got bad enough in AA, I could always go back to that old way of life. And if I failed, I failed. Um, <clears throat> and I knew then that I had no excuse to go back, that the obsession had been removed and that it no longer plagued my mind. And I didn't wake up with a thought. And I didn't go to bed with a thought. And, it, <clears throat> and the only time that I could think about, you know, really thinking about drinking is when we sit here and talk about it. <laughs> and and it, just, it just baffled me and it just let me know that the program works and that I might be able to stay sober for the rest of my life. And that was another scary, scary thought. And, um, <clears throat> but thankfully, you know, I only got to do that one day at a time. That's all I got to worry about is today. So, um, so that's another one of those awakenings where just all of a sudden something magical happened in my life. And I, I look at step six and seven. I look at that obsession to drink like a defect. Just like we talk about shortcomings, defects and such. And that when we have them, we get to that point where we ask God to remove them. And we move on with the steps. And I think that that obsession to drink was, was like that for me. I think it was absolutely removed like a defect. There's something wrong with me. That obsession, that insanity, that obsession of the mind. And, and the steps, and along with a higher power, is why it's been removed. Um, so I'm going to meetings constantly. And uh, <clears throat> one day I'm thinking to myself, and I'm probably, just probably molded this over in my head more than one, one time, but going to meetings and hearing the same stuff all the time. I mean, hearing the same people say the same stuff, and I'm hearing the same stuff at one meeting, go to another meeting, that same person's there sharing the same thing again. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I've heard it all. What else is there to hear? 
you know, what in the world is going on around here? I just can't take it anymore. Am I going to do this for the rest of my life? <laughs> and, and I'm kind of in that place. I don't know that I can do this for the rest of my life one day at a time, hearing the same stuff. And, <clears throat> and I heard something. And, and I don't know who said this, but I've heard it more than once. But they said something changed in their, in their mind or heart or whatever. They realized one day that they couldn't just keep coming to the meeting looking to see what they could get. They had to come to see what they could give. And what I learned, you know, as the time's gone by, but that was a complete change in my thought process, is that you can't give it all away. You can't, you can never run out of give. And, and that opened up the whole deal, because now I got no reason not to come, because I'm there to see what I can give, not what I can get. And it also makes me... Uh, you know, in my mind and in my heart, feel like I'm, I need to be here because now I don't know where it is I need to give. And I walk into a, a meeting and I don't know where, where I need to give. It may be the most uh, unlikely person. Or it may be a situation where I come into a group and, and somebody, I've had people walk up to me and say, man, I could really tell you were listening. Didn't say a word. They said, I appreciate you sitting in the audience. I really could tell you were listening to me. And I focused on you when I was talking. And I was like, wow. Um, so it can be that simple. Um, so I'm going out of town to a meeting. At this point, I had two years of sobriety. And... Uh, Two minutes. I had about two years of sobriety, and uh, <clears throat> and uh, I walked into a meeting. And I, I, you know, at this time is when and I usually don't get like this, but it was one of them times where I needed you. I needed a meeting. I needed to be with my people. I needed to be around you, and and I was hurting, and so I'm out of town, a long ways from home, and I don't know anybody. And I go to this meeting, and I walk into this meeting, and I'm like, I'm just not getting it. I'm not getting what I need. I mean, these people aren't paying any attention to me. They're not welcoming me. They're not talking to me. I'm like, what's wrong with you people? And I remember something else somebody had told me. And I know who said this. This was Tom I told me this. And he said he's been to meetings before whenever he didn't feel like he was welcome. They just weren't talking to him. They weren't welcoming him to the group. They weren't. And what he would do was get up and start talking to them and welcoming them to their own home group. <laughs> and so he was just going, hey, how you doing? Good to see you here. I'm glad to be here. So I started doing that. Going around, I was doing that in that meeting. The next thing I know, they were doing the same thing with other people. And it changed the whole mental thing going on there. And we went to sit down to have the meeting. They started going around giving their sobriety dates. And I realized I was in a newcomer's meeting. I had two years of sobriety and I had the most sobriety in that group. And it, it just, another one of those awakenings where I realized I was exactly where I was supposed to be. Um, so, one more story. I'm going to go over about one minute. <laughs> <clears throat> so, I had this question in my mind, when is this amends going to be made to my father? 
I, I just didn't know when, when it was going to be up because I knew what the problem was. My father waited, laid awake at night wondering if I was alive or dead. I would not come home. He didn't know what was wrong with me, what was going on with me, um, and he worried. And I remember him saying to me, you know, one day you'll have a child and you'll know how I feel. That day came, I had a child, and I understood a little bit of what he was talking about. And I'm like, how do you make amends for that? And I remember one day I was sitting with him, and he was talking about another family member. About They were putting him through a lot of tough stuff, and he was having a hard time dealing with it, and he was powerless over the situation, and it was really giving him a hard time, and he was trouble sleeping, trouble, you know, just trouble. And he looked at me, just as serious, he looked at me, and he said, son... I don't worry about you anymore. I don't worry about you anymore. And I knew the amends had been made. And uh, that was another time when it was just absolutely clear to me that uh, um, the program had done something, um, that I was powerless over myself. But uh, I'm out of time, and I appreciate you all listening to me, and thank you.